the blessing. I heard many great reports last week uh, from people where the, the teaching blessed them. Tonight he's going to teach on baptism. Amen, amen, amen. <laughs> a little more. A little more, a little more. Here's the pulpit. Yeah, with a big, not so big pulpit. <laughs> All right, praise the Lord, everybody. Praise Him, praise Him. Uh, so last time, I think, thank you, Bishop. I think last time I went a little over. I'm sorry. He said 45 minutes, and I thought that was what I had. And, um, yeah. I understand, but uh, I know, but folks, you know, you work all day, you want to, you know, come to church, get a little bit of church in and then be able to go home. Oops, that's my cane. It's not a gun. I had, I had it in my pocket one time, like, hey man, what do you got in your pocket? What do you, what do you got up there? And it's, it's just my cane, that's all. Just FYI. Um, all right, so I get to teach on baptism tonight. How did it go last week? Was, uh, God coming down, did that make sense? Uh, was it helpful? All right, so, um, you know, I talked a little bit about the idea of revelation. And do you realize that there's revelation in baptism too? And, you know, uh, Sister Lily read the verse. She said uh, that Jesus said that salvation is of the Jews. Well, where did he come up with that idea? Other than the fact that he's God. So, uh, <laughs> What I want to do is I want to be careful, and I want to start looking at baptism, not just from a New Testament context, but from an Old Testament context. Does anybody know where baptism can be found in the Old Testament? You know, there's, there's types and shadows, but the idea of being baptized in the name of Jesus is, is, it seems to be a very New Testament concept, uh, but it's not. And uh, we've got a lot of verses to go through. Um, so I'm going to read a few things. Um, let me see what time it is here. Oh, I love this iPad. Just tell me my cellular's not working. I don't need the cellular. Okay. You guys want to hear a crazy testimony? God called me to IBC, and I didn't have any money, and I went down there. And um, I went to the school for the blind down in Indianapolis, and while I was there, I met a blind lady, and she does work for, to help blind people get money for school. And she gave this big presentation, and she was like, hey, I can do this and help you get money, and da-da-da-da. And I was like, okay, it's 7.09. So she, she said, well, I charge $2,000. And all the other blind people were like, I ain't paying her no $2,000. And I was like, I'll pay you the $2,000. She said she could give me some money. There was no limit to it. I just have to be in school, and I have to get it in small chunks. So I took it. And, you know, the money that I was able to get was like 400 bucks a month. And it helped me pay for my school at IBC. That's all I had. I mean... I, I uh, took on you know, three missionaries. I paid my tithes, and then I paid my IBC bill, 
And at the end of it, I had like $86 left for the whole month. But I stayed faithful and I paid the whole thing. Well, then I came and I went and got my master's degree and I was like, well, I'm really struggling for finances. Maybe I could get a student loan. So I did. It was like six grand. And then after I got it, at the end of the school year, I get a call from this organization and they're saying, well, you're pre-approved that we'll just discharge this school loan and you won't have to pay it back. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah. I thought it was a joke. She said, no, it's not a joke. You're, you're pre-approved because of this program, I guess maybe what that lady had did for me. So I'm like, well, I'm still going to school. She said, that's okay. When you get done with school, let us know. I'm like, yeah, but I still want to borrow some more money. She said, that's okay. Get what you need. And when you're done, let us know. So I'm like, okay, well then I went through the whole school year and I took everything that I needed. And then I went overseas and I still took the student loan, everything that I needed. And um, it ended up being like, it sounds bad, man, like $190,000 student loan debt. And, um, but I knew, I remember this lady said, let me know when you're done. So I called the lady back. And I was like, lady, you said that when I was done with school, let you know. She said, you're right. You're pre-approved. Let me send you over this application. It was two pages. I answered the first question, no. The second question, yes. And submitted the documentation. And you know they discharged $190,000. <laughs> I was worried about going to IBC, answering the call of God. I didn't have any money. I was worried about a little $8,000 school bill, but God had put me in contact with a person that it just didn't look right. You know, $2,000, this blind lady, can she really do what she says she's going to do? But I trusted the Lord and gave the lady her money, and it ended up being more than $190,000 plus $32,000. And that's not counting other, you know, I've got more than $330,000 worth of an education. You believe that? All of it paid for so what the preacher later was saying earlier about going and expecting God to make up for it, he does that. You know, this has just happened. This is two days ago. And we're just blown away by it, you know. So God can do it. And he, he can do it. <clears throat> All right, so John chapter, 1 John. 1 John 5 verse 4. 1 John chapter 5 verse 4. We're going to look at a couple of verses, and then what I want to do, I want you to follow along with these first couple of verses, and then I'm just going to run through it, because we've got a lot of stuff to get through. Will you trust me? You write down the notes or whatever you want to write down the verses, go back, and, and then hopefully you'll have a much deeper meaning of what baptism is and what its purpose is from the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and a full understanding of why baptism in Jesus' name is right. Because there is a debate, the debate between the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and Jesus' name. First John 5, chapter 4, or 5, verse 4, it says this, because everything, having been born of God, overcomes the world. <laughs> everything, having been born of God, overcomes the world. Everything. Having been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory overcoming the world, our faith. Pretty bold statement by John. 
Verse 5, who is the one overcoming the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Verse 6, this is the one coming through the water and the blood. Now, it's interesting because I've heard that taught that maybe that's the birth canal and things like that. And it may be the birth canal, but I don't think that it's talking about the womb. I think it's talking about the blood that is expected for the atonement of sins and the water, which is required for the washing away of sins. And I think that's what he's talking about here. And he's pointing to the Old Testament because that's what it was. It was the blood of bulls and goats and then the washing uh, that was required. And then he goes on to say, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, which indicates what he seems to be saying is that Jesus Christ himself is supposed to be the water and the blood. Right? And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because sometimes we think of Jesus just being a sacrifice, but do we really think about him being the water? And that's an interesting way of looking at baptism. And it says, and the spirit is the one witnessing because the spirit is the truth. So we're expecting God to, to witness tonight. Amen. Verse 7, for there are three barren witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, or literally one and the same. And they're all, in Greek, they're all predicate, and they're all um, nominative, which basically means that they're all interchangeable. So when he's saying that these three are one, it's not one in unity. He's saying that these three are one, basically one and the same. Verse 8, and there are three who bear witness on the earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are to the one. Who's the one? Going back to God. That's who they witness to. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Because this is the witness of God, which he has witnessed about his son. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So that's what we're getting to. What does it mean to be, to repent and to be baptized? And I want to get into a little bit of a teaching here. If I was to ask you what repentance is, what would you say? Turning away, right? Uh, but do you know what the word is in Hebrews, uh, what the word in Hebrew is for repentance? Probably not. The word is tshuva. Uh, Talasot tshuva is to do tshuva. And tshuva means repentance, but it also means to answer. Right? And it's interesting because, like, we don't think about repentance being to answer, but the Jews do. Well, why do they think about repentance being to answer? That's another question I want you to think about and keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to answer that tonight. And he goes on to say this, and you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Man, what a great promise. <laughs> you don't get any better than that, folks. I'm just telling you. <clears throat> All right, so, so what about this whole Old Testament stuff and the New Testament stuff and... and uh, I, I, we could get into the New Testament and have a really long 
<clears throat> very great, very valuable conversation. But I think there's a lot of depth in the Hebrew Bible. And I tried to understand it the way it was at the very beginning. Exodus chapter 19. If you remember, we talked about that last week where God had come down. And he goes on to say this. And the Lord said to Moses, um, go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their clothes. So there's this act, this, this, this thing in the act of sanctification that requires washing, right? And that's what it is, right? It requires this thing called washing. And God's in the process. He comes down of the mountain, and he gives his word, and he gives all kinds of instructions throughout the Bible. And it's interesting, too, because, like, you know, this is the birth of the nation of Israel, where God had come down and gives him his laws and takes him through these processes. And he declares what, you know, through laws what sin is. And he also declares in his laws um, the things that make you unclean. And that's the way that we usually look at it. But uh, one way that we don't usually look at it is that in these words, in these laws, he's not also declaring the things that are sin and the things that make you unclean, but he also is declaring on how we become clean, right? So that's the goal of the law, right? The, the goal of the law is to reprove us, but not just to leave us there. It's not just there to declare what sin is and say, there you go, you're a bad person. Offer up this goat or this bullock or whatever, and you'll be clean. Nope. There's actually a, a function of the law that has the responsibility to make us clean, all right. So I want to talk about this idea of the water of the blood in the blood. Exodus chapter twenty-nine, verse four. He says, "This you shall take Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and you shall wash them in water." Now it's interesting there because he uses this statement: "You shall take them to the door of the tabernacle." It's interesting because Jesus said, I am the door, right? And, 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 and it seems a, a bit far-fetched to say that that's what he's talking about here. But wait till you start seeing here. Like there's so much stuff um, that don't make sense within the context. I mean, it's, it has to be revelatory. All right, let's keep reading here. Exodus 29, verse 17 says this, and you shall cut the ram into pieces, and you shall wash its inward parts and its legs, and you shall place it upon its pieces and on its head. Verse uh, 30, or chapter 30, verse 19. And Aaron and his sons shall wash from it, their hands and their feet. And, and, and Exodus 30, verse 20. As they go into the tabernacle of the congregation... So, just a minute ago, it says that when they come to the door, but here he's saying as they go into the congregation, to the tabernacle of the congregation. So, it's not exactly clear where it was that they were supposed to be washing, right? It's not, it wasn't a set place. It was just that they had the, the responsibility to wash before they got there. They shall wash with water and shall not die, right? So, 
there's this aspect of being washed with water where the responses or the, the, the consequences, you'll live as a result of it. Amen. Or as they draw into the altar, into, to, near to the altar to minister, to burn a firing offering to the Lord. So they have this responsibility to wash, right? So the, the idea of, the, of the, the blood and the water, the, the animals had to die to atone for sin. We all agree on that, right? But that's what God had said. You know, the animals were innocent. You know, uh, they, they, they were without blemish. And, you know, basically all they had to do was re- just lay their hands on the head of the animal, confess their sins, and the weight of the sin would be transferred to the animal, right? And, and, and that would atone for their sin. But that wasn't just it, right? He didn't command just for the sacrifice alone. He also commanded that they had to wash. And the washing with it, that they would live. And if they didn't wash, they would, they would die, right? So, so when people say, well, baptism is not necessary for salvation, you can look right here in Exodus and say, well, washing was required so that they would live, right? Do you see that? All right, so it's becoming more clear here, the value of the law um, when it comes to, to washing. Exodus 30, verse 21. And they shall wash their hands and their feet, and they shall not die. So it's repeating it. And it shall be a never-ending statue to them, to him and his seed, and to the generations. So it's for everybody. Exodus chapter 40, verse 12. And you shall cause to draw near Aaron and his sons, to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, there it is again, and you shall wash them with water, Exodus 40, verse 32, as they came unto the tabernacle of the congregation, as they drew near to the altar, they would wash as the Lord had commanded Moses. So who commanded it? The Lord did, right? So it's his laws. So they had the responsibility. Now, you know how the New Testament is set up, kind of interesting. You've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell you the testimony of, of Jesus and all the miracles and things like that that he did and the death, burial, and resurrection. Very beautiful. You've got the book of Acts, which is, you know, uh, like the application of, of what Jesus had taught, right? Uh, that's what it is, and that's the birth of the church. But then you've got the rest of the books where... You know, it's the church, and the church is being developed by the word of God and um, by the law and, and by teaching, and, and it's maturing. And the Old Testament is really kind of set up, or at least the law is kind of set up the same type of way. You've got Genesis and, and, and parts of Exodus that, you know, talk about, um, you know, just how God had come down and the miracles that he did, right? Same thing with Jesus. And then you've got Leviticus where it starts talking about the laws and the application of the laws. And then it goes on to Numbers, where it's the, um, the application of the laws in, like, real life. You know, in Deuteronomy, it basically is a recounting of the, of the laws to uh, a developed people, a developed congregation. So it's very similar on how it's set up. So we're going to Leviticus now, and I want to point out a couple of things here. Leviticus 13.6 says this. And the priest shall look upon him, 
again on the seventh day. And behold, if the plague has become dim and the plague has not basically spread, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. So what's happening there? Right? There's, if you go back and you look at it, he's telling them about a leprosy. And he's telling them what to look for. And he's saying, look, if, if these are the things that you're looking for, and if you see these things, then that person is unclean. Right? But it, it could stop there, but it doesn't. So instead of stopping there, it says, hey, here's what you should look for in order to pronounce them clean. And that's the application of it. You know, that's what we were talking about earlier, how the law <clears throat> dictates or tells what is clean and what is not clean, but it just doesn't leave people in a state of uncleanliness. It declares on how to make them clean. He says this, it's a scab, and he shall wash his garments, and he shall be clean. Leviticus 13:34, And the priest shall look upon the scab on the seventh day, and behold, if the scab is, has not spread in the skin, and it's not deeper than the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. He shall wash his garments, and he shall be clean. Now, what's happening there? The priest isn't just saying you're clean. What does he have to do? He has to wash, doesn't he? Why? Why? Because washing has the cleanliness aspect to it, right? It has, that's the idea. It's, it's designed to make you clean, right? Right? Lev 17, verse 15. And any person who eats a dead body or a torn thing, um, be he a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water. And be unclean till the evening. Then he shall be clean. Well, why is it adding that he shall be unclean until the evening? <clears throat> because there's processes that you go through. You know, becoming clean is not just something that, you know, that it's just there and it's done. There's a process that you have to go through. And it points it out. Like, and it's interesting how Leviticus starts out just saying, hey, wash your clothes. And it's very general. <clears throat> but when you get into Leviticus... It becomes more and more detailed, and as we go, you'll see it come up a little bit more clear. 17, verse 16, Leviticus. And if he does not wash them, nor bathe his flesh, then he shall bear his iniquity. So there is the aspect of if you don't wash, you, 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 you bear the responsibility of sin. So there it is again. And, and we're going to go to Numbers. Numbers 8, verse 7. And thus you will do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of a sin offering. And they shall make razors come across their body. And wash their garments. And cleanse themselves. So here it's adding a, a new dimension to it. What is it? They have the responsibility to clean them themselves. So why is it saying that you should sprinkle? This isn't a baptism. It's a sprinkling of a sin offering. And what they would do is they would take a sin offering that was burnt, uh, take the ashes and mix it with some water, 
And this was a process that they would go through where they would sprinkle it uh, upon them. And, and, and they would go through this process in order for them to, to become clean. The priest had the responsibility to, to, to participate with them through this process. Why? Because we can't get to heaven all by ourselves. Amen. We need a leader in our life. Amen. We need spiritual people to lead us and guide us and, and to help us. Right? So there's these processes in there. And, and we have to go through these processes. And when we go through these processes, according to this text right here that we read, that's how we wash ourselves. We go through the process. Right? The red heifer. Numbers 19, verse 7. And the priest shall wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his flesh in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. So here the priest has a responsibility too. So it's not like, you know, once you go through it, it's over, right? And anyone who's been involved in ministry any amount of time, we're constantly challenging ourselves, developing ourselves, and, and dealing with God and allowing God to deal with us. We're constantly repenting. We're constantly growing. We're going through the process. And here it's instituted in the law that the priests have the responsibility to continue to go through the process. Why? Because they're not any better than anybody else. Everybody goes through it. And it says this, and the priest shall be unclean until the evening. Well, why? You know, he, he didn't even do anything. He, wouldn't, he didn't do anything he sinned for the red heifer. All he's going to be used is to try to help bring someone else through the process. So be, just because he's trying to help bring someone else through the process, he's got to go through the process himself. All right? Numbers 19.7. Okay, I read that already. Numbers 19.8. And he that burned her shall wash his clothes in water and shall wathe his flesh in water, and he shall be unclean to the evening. And he who burned her is talking about the, the red heifer. So the priest that's got to go through it, even the person that burns, that even that part that's involved in that sacrifice, they've got to wash themselves and go through the process themselves too. Numbers 19.10. And he that gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and shall be unclean into the evening. So at every step of the way, there's this act of someone's got to wash themselves. And it shall be to the sons of Israel and to the stranger among them for a never-ending statute. So here it is, this never-ending statute that, that this is the way it's going to be for them and for everyone. Everyone's got to go through the process. Amen? It says, number 1919, and the clean person shall sprinkle on the other, on the unclean on the third day. And on the seventh day, he shall purify himself and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself. And then he shall be clean. So it's interesting here that at every step of the process, there's been three or four steps already that we've gone through. And there's no relent. Everyone has to do it. And it goes on, this is verse 21, says, This will be a never-ending statue. And he who sprinkles the water of the impurity shall wash his clothes, and he shall be unclean in the evening. Numbers 31, verse 24. It says this, And you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day, and you shall be clean. And afterwards you shall come into the camp. Well, isn't that an interesting statement? 
Why? Because you had to be declared clean before you were able to come into the camp. So, I mean, this is really interesting, but what in the world does it have to do with us in the New Testament? Well, that's the idea of tshuva. Well, what is tshuva? It means to answer. Well, when God came down and he gave the law, the people had the responsibility to either accept it or reject it, right? So if God is saying, hey, look, this is what makes you unclean, the people had to answer. So if God's talking, and you've, you've dealt with it in your own life, where you felt conviction, what did you have to do? You had to answer that, didn't you? You had to respond to it. And that's how tshuva works. Repentance works. Because God will come down, he'll engage with you, and you'll have to, to answer. And, 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 and that's how baptism works and the idea of making someone clean because he gives his law. And there's three processes to it, right? And the process is, one, you agree with God. This is your word. God, you're God. This is your law. And, and if I'm guilty of sin, that means that I'm unclean. I agree with him on that. And that's how we answer, Right? And then the other part of it is, is like, well, he says, well, this is what you have to do in order to become clean. We just read several verses of it, a ton of them. And it seems silly, but this is what you have to do. So what did the next process that the person has to do? They have to agree with God and say, okay, this is what I have to do. And then they have to do it. It requires obedience, right? So once they, God says, hey, this is sin, and you're unclean, you answer, yes. And then what do you do? You become obedient. You have to be, do what God tells you to do in order to become clean. And then what? The word, the same word that said that you were unclean, now pronounces you clean. That's how it works. Now, repentance, we, you know, and I learned it too, and I think in the New Testament church, we kind of, it is, it does mean to turn away, Absolutely. But I think that sometimes that we make it harder than what it actually is. Well, I have to stop doing this and I have to, you know, and people are like, they've got all this list of rules and stuff like that. And it just, it can work that way where people just make a complete sudden turn and, and, and then that's it. But it usually don't work that way. And even though when we're walking with God, no matter whether we're a new convert or <clears throat> we're involved in ministry, we all have the same processes. We just read the text. Right? And it's like this is the word of God. We agree with it. And then the word of God tells us what to do in order to become clean. Because that's all it does. You know, it, it, do you realize that the word of God doesn't tell you how to become unclean? It just tells you, hey, this is what uncleanliness is. And it leaves it there. It's pretty short. But then we just read all these texts where it goes through and tells you all these different processes on how to become clean. And how to be right with God. So that's really what the intent of the law is. We don't look at it that way from, from a New Testament. We think it's all these rules and regulations, and there is some of that. Judaism has made it that. But that isn't the way it's intended to be. God came down. He said, here's my laws, and I want you to live in this way. It's sin. It makes you unclean. You're unholy. So here's what I want you to do to become holy. That was the entire purpose. We agree. We answer. We become obedient. And when we do that, he pronounces us clean. 
And then when we become clean, guess what? We become part of the congregation. We're able to enter in. Is that what the text said? We read it. <clears throat> Pretty straightforward, isn't it? We haven't really looked at it like that very often, have we? But it helps, doesn't it? But that's what repentance is. That's what chuva is. Yes, it is turning, but it's more deeper than that, right? We answer. We agree with God. We be obedient to his process, and he makes us clean. Amen? So, that's what he said. Peter said, repent. Okay, so we dealt with repentance. You believe we did all that? That was repentance. Then he goes on to say, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So let's look at that. How about that? Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. You wouldn't have expected that, would you? You wouldn't have expected no Genesis chapter 1, other. <laughs> and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together under one place and let the dry land appear. You know that word to gather together? The word there in Hebrew is mikvah. And kavah literally means to, to be gathered or even twisted together. And basically what it is, it's the first time the word mikvah is used. And it's used where these waters would just come together and they would become one. And it's interesting that it uses that because this idea of baptism is based upon this word. And is a mikvah, right? Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. Says this. He says, pay attention here if you're, if you're listening. He says, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord. Verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. What evils are they? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Sister Lou's over there preaching all my stuff. And I was like, dang. I was like, man, you leave some on the table for me. So here he's saying right here in Jeremiah that he's the fountain of living waters. And he says, this saith the Lord. Remember, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God who stepped into time and space. Right? If you paid attention last week, you already know where I'm going with this. Right? He's the fountain of living waters. Right? And he said, they've hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And here's what he's saying. They've rejected me, and they've hewn out cisterns that can hold no water. Well, how in the world are they doing that? Turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 12. It says, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Verse 13, O Lord, God who stepped into time and space, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Now, what's interesting, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse, verse 13. Right here it is. We just read the verse. Oh, Lord. But there's a word there in Hebrew that's not presented here in English for some reason. And I don't understand it for the life of me because it's so beautiful. And you know what that word is? Mikvah. And here what Jeremiah is doing 
is he's calling the Lord a mikvah, a gathering together, a place of water. Why is he doing that? Because, and I'll tell you why. Because God himself said that he's the fountain of living water. And, and, and what does living water have to do with, with baptism? Well, I don't know if my picture is up there. Is my picture up there? Can you put my picture up there? They're going to put a picture up there. You look at it when it gets up there. I'm not going to take much time to wait for it. Okay. What that is, I don't know where it's at. I'll be like, that Superman over there. But what that is, is that's a, that's a hole dug in the ground, and it's labeled with, that's the pool of Silam. That's a mikvah. And it's there in Jerusalem in the city of David, and it's a place where the Jews would go, and they would dip themselves before they would enter into the temple to offer up their sacrifices and even wash their animals. Well, according to Jewish law, the water that, the only acceptable water for a mikvah had to be living water. And you're probably wondering, well, what in the world is living water? Well, according to Jewish law, living water can only come from two sources. It has to come from Hashemayim, which is the heavens, or it has to come from Ha'adama, from the ground. And living water is rainwater. It has to come from the heavens. And then it has to come from the ground, where water comes up out of the ground. And so it, all these times when uh, these guys were traveling throughout the wilderness, um, they had a place, a stream, that constantly did, had water flowing from it where they had the ability to wash, not just to drink, but also to wash. So that's where this idea comes from. And, and, and even it talks about, Paul talks about it, and I think in, in Romans, he talks about the rock that followed them in the wilderness. And that rock was Christ. And that rock was a well that produced water. So there's all of these different types of Jewish law uh, that tell you that the only water that's acceptable to, for a mikvah, uh, a place where someone can be baptized, has to be living water. And it's still the same today. You can go to um, a Jewish place and go into a mikvah, and they've got an, it's an open roof where it can actually rain into uh, and be gathered into this, this pool of water. And they dip themselves over and over again um, for all different kinds of religious purposes. Living water. Water from heaven and water from the ground. Well, what does this have to do with the New Testament? Well, John chapter 4, verse 10. We just read it. Jesus answered and said, if thou knewest the gift of God and, and, and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, um, thou would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Well, who is Jesus saying that he is? Who has the ability to give living water? It's God himself. That's who he is. He's the fountain of living water. So he's sitting right there. It's like the well next to the well. It's like the fountain next to a well. And you know what the difference is between a fountain and a well, don't you? 
a fountain is constantly pushing water up and out. Constantly, it's a never-ending flow. It's gushing, it's overflowing. And a well, you've got to dig into it. Which one was a greater a source of water? The fountain. He's saying if you would have known, you would ask of him. Verse 11. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence thou hast living water. Verse 12. Art thou greater than our father Jacob? Yeah, maybe. Which gave us the well and drank thereof himself, he and his children and his cattle. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Uh, verse 14, but so whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him, who shall give him? I shall give him. Right? Now, this isn't a second person. I shall give him, right? Shall never thirst, but the water I shall give him shall, bow, shall be in him a well of water springing up. That's it. That's that fountain. Now, why is he saying it shall be in him a fountain springing up, a well springing up? Why? Because when we receive the Holy Ghost, that's, that's God. That's the fountain of living water inside of us. Right, so here he's saying, I'm going to give it to him. So you can see this beautiful oneness revelation, right? Do you see that? Now, and, and you remember in Jeremiah, he said, oh, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God who stepped into time and space. Right, that's that revelation again. And here, Jesus, God manifest in the flesh, God who stepped into time and space, is filling that revelation completely full and then offering it to her isn't that beautiful and he said and it'll well up to spring forth up to everlasting life verse um, John chapter 7 verse 2 I'm gonna grab a drink real quick we could go home from just that amen but there's still more Now, the Jews, the Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. I want you to have that. The Jews, Feast of the Tabernacle was at hand. Chapter 7, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Okay, now, why did I point out the, the, the day of the feast? Because it was the Feast of the Tabernacles. In Hebrew, we celebrate it. It's called Sukkot. And the idea of Sukkot is, is they build the booth, and then they have to sit in the booth, and they have to eat in it, and they pray in it. It's called a sukkah. And, you know, it's, it's really cool. And the idea of it is that, you know, you have to go out into this place, and you have to be in this booth. And it's interesting because, like, you know, it, on one hand, the, you're supposed to be in the booth. But by you being obedient, the booth is also supposed to be in you. So it's very interesting that, 
that here they are, they're celebrating Sukkot, and it's a seventh-day uh, holiday. But there's uh, interesting about Sukkot is that it's not just a seven-day holiday. There's an eighth day added on to it, and it's the great last day. And he's setting a context here of what's taking place in this story. And without the context of Judaism, we miss it, right? So this holiday is going on. They're in the temple, right? They're on the temple mount. And the people are coming, and they're doing all these different things. It's a very festive holiday. And Jesus is teaching the people. And, you know, they, they go on to make the statement that it's on the last day, so the eighth day of this holiday. And if you don't know, the last day of the holiday, there's something very interesting that's taking place. And that is that the priest will go to the mikvah, and he'll grab up water, and he'll carry it back to the altar. And he pours the water on the altar, and it's called an alivation offering. So it's very interesting because what they're doing is they're taking this water from the mikvah, which is living water that came from either heaven and from earth, from the ground. And they're taking up this water and they're pouring it on the altar and they do it all day long on the eighth day. So it's the eighth day. That's what's going on. That's the context. And they're doing this, offering up this offering. And Jesus is saying, what? Anyone who comes to me and asks, I'll give them the drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So he, here he is. He's making that same statement again. And he's taking this, this image, and you can't see it unless you know the context of Judaism. And I'm sorry that you don't have it. But that's what they would do. They would go to that mikvah, and they would pull out that water, and they would offer it up as a sacrifice. And in the midst of him... Uh, you know, going through this, this thing, he takes advantage of that opportunity to talk about who he is. And the context of the story, you know what they're trying to do to him, don't you? The whole context, they want to take him up and arrest him and kill him. And in the midst of them saying, hey, who is this guy? He's misleading the people. Da, 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 da. Let's arrest him. Let's kill him. And he just comes right out and tells them, I'm the fountain of living water right here. And as they're pouring out this offering and they're threatening to kill him, he just goes out and says, whoever believes on me, what? As the scripture has said. Right? And he's taking them back to that place where? To the scriptures. Right? And you get to that place where you're, he's giving you the word. And what do you have to do? You have to agree with the word. You have to answer the word. You become obedient to the word. Right? And then the word will make you clean. Right? And he takes in that place, and then out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Right? That's what he preached. He, he said, but this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost had not had been given for Jesus, had not yet been glorified. Now, that's really cool teaching. Right? John chapter 8. Verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning, he came again. Now, what's happening there? Chapter 7, he was on the Temple Mount in the temple. And then chapter 8, it says that he went to the Mount of Olives. And then it says he came again early in the morning. 
And what's happening is this is the same day, right? And if you understand Jewish prayers, they would go and pray early in the morning, and it would be before daylight, which is probably when this libation offered was going on. So he was there, and then he ends up leaving. He goes to the Mount of Olives, and then he returns back to the temple. And we're trying to say it's still on the eighth day when this, uh, when this uh, libation offering is being poured out, right? And he says he came back into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Verse, chapter 8, verse 6. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. Why? What were they accusing him? It was the lady taken in adultery. And they said, we caught her in the act. Right? And he goes on to say this, that, you know, uh, they're like, what are we going to do? And they're saying, they're asking him, what shall we do in order that they might accuse him? What are they trying to accuse him? They're trying to get him to violate the law of Moses on a cardinal sin such as adultery so that they can kill him. And then what does he do? Right here, we're looking at it. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger, he wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, Let he who is outstanding cast the first stone. Verse 8. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Well, what's he writing on the ground? You remember what we read in Jeremiah? That those who will who reject him will be written in the earth. And that's what they were doing in chapter 7. They were rejecting him. They didn't look at him as though he was the Messiah. They were trying to kill him. Here in chapter 8, what are they trying to do? They're trying to trap, uh, trap him. Why? Because they wanted to kill him. Why? Because they weren't accepting him as Messiah. And what is he doing? He's writing in the ground. And I always wondered what he was writing. And, but when you make that connection of about God saying that I am the fountain of living waters in Jeremiah, and this whole story, John takes the whole story and, and, and places it uh, uh, to Jesus, I, maybe he was writing their names. I don't know what it is, but you can see how this image between John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 fit Jeremiah beautifully, doesn't it? It's very phenomenal, right? So, John chapter 9, verse 5. We're still going. We could go ahead and go home, but we're not. He said, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse chapter 9, verse 6. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground. What is he getting ready to do? He's getting ready to heal the blind person. His disciples said, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, oh, this is so that the glory of God can be revealed. So he spits on the ground, and he made clay with the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, verse 7, and said unto him, go, wash. You see that? In the pool of Silam, that mikvah. You see that picture? That's it. I've been there. And I'm telling you, when I realize how I'm down in the pool, I'm like, whoa, man. The last blind person that was here came out. Not a blind person anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is here. And I'm like, God, what are you doing? Like, and I know he's going to heal me. He's already promised he's going to heal me. He's working on my blindness. And if I wasn't blind, I wouldn't have got that student loan paid off. So I'll be blind for a couple more years. You know what I'm saying? Thank you, Lord. 
I've been blind so long, $190,000. You give me another $190,000, I'll be blind for another five years. It ain't a big deal. So I trust the Lord. Right? So he tells him, go and wash. And he says, he, in the pool of Siloam, which is, by interpretation, sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed. And as a result, he came seeing. What did he do? He, 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 he was told, go wash. And he had to do what? He had to answer that. And then he had to be obedient to her. He went and washed, and then what happened? Not only was he clean, he came back with his eyes open. Isn't that beautiful? You see the revelation and all that, what he's doing there? It's very beautiful. Psalms 146, verse 5. It says, happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Verse 6, which made heaven and earth, the sea, all that there was in, which keeps truth forever. Verse 7, which seeketh judgment for the oppressed, which giveth food to the hungry. The Lord, he what? He looses the prisoners. That's what his intentions are. Verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. This is the Lord, capital O, capital R, capital D, the God who stepped into time and space, opens the eyes of the blind. This is in Psalms, man. This is David writing this. I mean, he didn't do that. He never saw God open any eyes of the blind. We've never seen that anywhere until God became a man and he healed people in the New Testament. The Lord... He raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. That's what he wants, right? Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord preserves the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. And that what you preach earlier, lady? They turn the world upside down. Verse 10. The Lord shall reign forever. Even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations. Praise ye the Lord. That's who he is. You see, and that's why we baptize in Jesus' name. Because he wasn't just a normal dude. He wasn't just a random fellow. Try to find my cane here. I don't know what I do with it. It fell down. Okay. I'll wait for you to get up here. <clears throat> That's who Jesus is. Hey Amen. He, you doing that for me? You're so sweet, my dude. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's who Jesus is. And that's what baptism is. He's the mikvah. That's what the fountain of living water means. He's the mikvah. That's what Jeremiah said. 
right? And the idea in Genesis chapter 1 is with the mikvah, the gathering together, is that it takes and twists the two together and they become one. So, so this idea of baptism is, is very beautiful because it's, it's wrapped together with repentance. And repentance is simply answering, right? We, we, we answer what God is saying. With, if something's unclean, the word of God says it's unclean, we, become, we, we answer that. We acknowledge that what he's saying is true. Amen. And once we do that, amen, we move to the next step where we become obedient. And we be obedient to the process that he tells us to become clean. And it's always wash. Right? He provides the blood, but we have the responsibility to wash. Amen? Amen. And it isn't just a blood, right? See, in the Old Testament, it was, it was short in that the blood did atone, but it didn't have the ability to make you clean. Right? And that's what John was talking about, about him being the water and the blood. Because not only was it the atonement, but he had the ability to make you clean. Amen. That when we're baptized with him, right, we, we, we become like in the mikvah. We come mixed together, twisted together with him, and we become one through the process of sanctification. That's what baptism is. Amen. And that's why it's done in his name. Why? Because God became a man. Amen. And he didn't just, amen, just uh, dwell in this, this body and, and he wasn't tempted. No, he was tempted in all points, just as we were. Amen. And he was obedient, obedient even under the cross. Amen. And he did it. Why? So that we could have a newness of life with him. Amen. And that's why we're baptized in his name. Not only because he's the fountain of living waters. Amen. Not only because he's the mikvah. Amen. Because he's the blood and the water. Amen. He's the atonement for our sin. And he's the one who has the, the ability to make us clean. He's the only one who has the ability to make us clean. Amen. Priests had the, the responsibility to pronounce someone clean in the Old Testament. But they couldn't make them clean. No, it was the word of God that made them clean. It was their obedience that made them clean. Amen. And that's where they had the responsibility to wash. Amen. And that's one of the things that's beautiful about the gospel. Yeah, he came. Yeah, he went through the process. Yeah, he became a propitiation for our sin. Amen. Yeah, he offered up his life and became the ultimate sacrifice. But we've got to do our part too. Amen. We've got to repent. Amen. And it's got to be a process that we continue to go through. We've got to acknowledge the word of God in every aspect of our lives, right? We've got to. We've got to agree with him. And then when we agree with him, we've got to be obedient to it. Amen. And when we're obedient, he makes us clean. Amen. That very word makes us and pronounces us clean. And then we're able to be part of the congregation. That's what it is. And that's why Peter preached the way that he did on the day of Pentecost. So we could have went through and we could have battled with the Trinitarians over Matthew 28, 19. But I think I gave you something that's way deeper than an argument. It's a revelation of who he is. And with that revelation, you have a better understanding why we need to be baptized in his name. Amen? All right.